Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And together we're reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're glad you're with us as we talk through the things we love, question the things we don't understand, and debate just what's going on in this wonderful series of books. Ian, can you tell us where we are and where we're headed this week? I have no idea, Mike, but I'm going to give it a try. We are a few chapters in to The Surgeon's Mate. We've already had the restoration of normal life, normal service, if you like, with Jack and Stephen being back among the Royal Navy. We've already had the ball in Halifax to celebrate the victory of the Shannon over the Chesapeake. And we've had the voyage across the Atlantic of Jack and Stephen and Diana, Stephen and Diana being engaged to be married now, Mm. aboard the packet Diligence. They're carrying dispatches, bringing news to England of this great victory. They had to throw off unbelievably tenacious and well-motivated privateers sent, we think, by the American agent Johnson and Diana's former lover, Johnson, trying to bring them back and to stop them. The American schooner grounded on ice and sank. The diligence managed to shake them off. So they're both eager to get home. And Mike, diligence has made record time, right? She's beat the other ship that was carrying the same dispatches. She's beat the Nova Scotia. And she's in England being greeted on all hands with celebration and jubilation at the news, the long-awaited news that there's been this great victory for the British Navy. Yeah, and so many long-awaited things out in front of us here. Jack has not been home for a very long time, and Stephen's been pursuing Diana for a very long time, and and now maybe we find out what happens here this week. Yeah, and Jack's been without a ship for a very long time, and Jack hasn't sat on a horse for a very long time. That's right. You know, we've talked with Ava Sander about she's somebody who's a horse lover, I'm a horse lover, and how O'Brien just sprinkles all these horses and horse references into his books. And here we've got Jack. You know, he's back. He's got to deal with all these people telling and retelling the tale of of the Shannon's victory, but he just cannot wait to get home. So he has a very heavy tip for anybody in his bar who can get him a weight-carrying horse, he says, uh, for his race to home. O'Brien writes from this horse's point of view that the horse had carried a number of other big, heavy riders who pushed him way too hard. And this horse has other ideas about being pushed as fast as Jack wants to push him. And it's a really kind of a testament, I think, to Jack. You know, we remember from post-captain, you know, hearing this horse's dialogue and the horse decides to throw him and boom, there he goes. And this horse is plotting the same thing, but Jack, a better rider, a bit more mature, stays on when the horse decides to throw him and continues to head for home. And and willing to be pretty brutal about it as well. Yeah. (sighs) So, and Mike, it's funny, in uh, the previous chapter, you and I were talking about how the pursuit by the American privateers was exciting, but it didn't feel like real jeopardy. At least it didn't to me. And I, I think you said the same thing. And I noticed a big difference in the passage that we're coming to now, where Jack rides up to Ashgrove, to his home, hoping to find his wife and his three children. And the writing is really tender and really immediate as Jack's 
hoping to hear or see or come across a sign that his family are there. And as he's riding around the outer grounds and approaching the house and it's quiet and he's listening, listening, listening for any sign that his three children are there. And I was right with him, much more of a nail-biting moment for me, even than the uh, than the privateer chase. Yeah. You know, Jack gets close enough. He hails the house. And we know Jack has a voice that will carry forever. Yeah. And here's nothing. It appears to be deserted. Um, he gets to the stable. He tends to his horse lovingly and caringly, <laughs> even though he's been so brutal to it on the way up. But uh, all of a sudden, his three children who are, are much grown, come marching by. One of the daughters turns and tells him to come back tomorrow. Everyone is gone. And then they, you know, sort of commanding her little unit, they march off chanting Wilkes and Liberty, which we don't know yet, but is a Jack's <laughs> father's new political affiliation. And so we got Jack, who's never set eyes on his son before, seeing him marching along with his twin sisters and headed out because none of them recognized Jack as their father. So Jack, you know, then turns and heads up to the house, still not seeing anybody, not hearing anybody, wondering what his kids are doing there alone uh, here at Ashgrove Cottage. <laughs> and of course, they're cheering for John Wilkes, who was dead by the time this episode happened, but was a big figure on the radical libertarian world of journalism and free speech in the 1790s, at the end of the previous century. And it's a real... <laughs> we've, we've talked in other places about how sometimes fathers are a bit of a disappointment to their sons. <laughs> but this is yes. a really funny moment for Jack to be disappointed by his three kids. Jack, who's a small-c conservative, old-fashioned agrarian Tory living in the last mm. age, does not want to see <laughs> his two daughters and his son marching and cheering for John Wilkes. So it's a really, really funny moment. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, Jack walks across the yard and he, and he goes into the house through the kitchen door. And O'Brien writes, through the empty kitchen with its gleaming copper pans and into the white corridor beyond, in the silence, the clean, light-filled silence, he hardly liked to call. Although the house was so familiar, so intimately well-known that his hand found the doorknobs of itself... He was not an imaginative man, yet it was as though he had returned from the dead only to find still sunlit death waiting for him. He looked into the dining room, silence there, no more, the breakfast room, neatness, clarity, no sound, no movement at all, automatically his eye glanced at the regulator, the austere clock by which he checked his astronomical observations. It had stopped. And I'm, I'm just like, I remember I've got all over goosebumps here, sunlit death. Yeah. The clock has stopped. And, you know, without time on board the ships, you can't navigate. You don't know where you, you know, where you are. You desperately need it. And I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just stunned. And I'm, I'm waiting going, oh my God, you know, is something happened to Sophie? What's what's going on here? Yeah, this is a really nice. Well, I, I don't know if they're deliberately here, if they were unconscious because O'Brien's a very literary cove, or if he's putting them in there deliberately. He's borrowing little connections to other writers. I have a feeling. I don't know for sure. I have a feeling that sunlit death is a clever reversal of the phrase 
dusty death, which is in the Macbeth speech tomorrow and tomorrow, creeps in his petty pace right. from day to day. And even the clock stopping, anybody who's seen Four Weddings and a Funeral knows that that's a quote, potentially, or an allusion to the W.H. Auden poem, Stop All the Clocks, Cut Off the Telephone. Right. Oh. Both of which <laughs> both of which don't make the mood light. They make the mood really portentous. <laughs> yes. So we're right with him. Every every second as he walks around this house, we're thinking, somebody come to life. Where's the life? Where's the family? Where's Sophie? Yeah. He turns the corner into his room, and there's Sophie sitting there looking sad, worried, thinner. But she turns, hearing Jack, and O'Brien describes her as, you know, full of radiant joy. So this in this incredibly somber scene, radiant joy breaks through. She tells him that Bondin and Killick are there, but they've gone off to Portsmouth. They want to hear if this rumor about the Shannon and the Chesapeake is true. Jack and Sophie are just way back and forth with each other, exchanging news. You know, Sophie learns about Stephen and Diana's engagement through Jack. Jack is so delighted that Bondin and Killick are back, but can't figure out how in the world that could happen, that they were all set to go out on his new ship, the Acosta, but that's got a different captain now. And the captain, in the goodness of his heart, had said, you know what? I, I know you guys have followed Jack everywhere. You go back, wait till Jack gets his next command. I'm not going to take you. So a little more goodness and light. Sophie, although dolls it just a bit by telling Jack that his father is now a radical standing for election in Parliament. And, you know, we hear a lot of Brian Phils is back in on the history of Jack's father's many political changes, all of them bad for Jack over the years, you know, even delaying his rise to post rank. And this sounds like the worst one yet. So being back in close contact with your family (laughs) doesn't have all upside, right? He's back with Sophie. He's back with the children. But he's also back within harm range of his father. And that's not a good thing. Right. I, I love the fact that uh, it turns out that Killick and Bondon and the other sailors around have taught the girls what O'Brien calls the broad accent and broader expressions of the lower deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could just imagine, you know, four-year-old girls cursing in lower deck English. I think that would be excellent. <laughs> well, as we hear from Mavis Sander, she you know, she talks about how she loves O'Brien's style of cursing. I think we all do that. We see this on the gun room. We see this on the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society. You know, this cursing has been adapted. But to hear it coming out of these mouths of the little girls as Killick and Bondin and one of their other mates return drunkenly from Portsmouth, it's, it's pretty funny. It is really funny. And then we've got this slightly serious moment as... Sophie's super excited that Jack is back and looking forward to him spending time at home. And he's urgently wanting to travel across the country, across to East Anglia, I think, to pay a visit to Mrs. Brooke, the wife of Philip Brooke, Jack's cousin, who is seriously, seriously injured and still with his life in danger in Halifax. And he carries his point, I think. You know, he says that my brother officers did this for me when you thought I was lost in the Southern Ocean. And it's right that I do this. And she she concedes the point and for a moment i think all is okay but you get the impression i think in the way this is written that all is not quite completely balanced in the dialogue between jack and sophie and that maybe there's going to be more to come i don't know 
Well, yeah, it is so tough because they have these beautiful moments of strolling through their gardens, remembering, you know, with all the, the, you know, ostentatious gardens that have kind of been added in with Jack's wealth, here are the little things that they planted together when they had no money. They, you know, they find that they're just comfortable sitting quietly with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, you almost think there's this companionship that Jack's always longed for that's there. Jack plays the piano and... Great moment. His fiddle. We were yeah. so worried about flesh. <laughs> He's playing it haltingly with his injured arm, but we find out something, you know, you are a musical genius there, Ian. What do we find out about this fiddle of his? Well, whatever fiddle he had with him in his travels around the world, it was a, a seagoing, rough and ready kind of an instrument. The fiddle that I think he bought in London back during the days of Post Captain is an Amati. So if you could get hold of a Niccolò Amati violin these days, it would cost you, quick Google, it would cost you about $600,000. They're, they're high six-figure dollar-sum instruments. Now, I'm sure that they were just as great fiddles in the early 19th century as they are now in the early 21st century. I don't know if dollars of the day would work out, but I think he could, <laughs> if he was willing to sell his violin, he'd take care of a lot of the problems that Kimber has in store for him. But never mind. I think as any as any musician will say, the instrument is worth to you what it's worth to you and hang what it's worth to anybody else. And it's a really touching moment because, you know, Stephen and Jack have been without this outlet for expression and emotion. And Jack's got it back again. And for now, it's a happy and joyful reunion. And he's able to express the peace and the happiness of being at home with Sophie. And it's so telling to your point about how this is the emotional outlet for Jack, the emotional outlet yeah. for us sometimes in the stories, that Jack home, seeing his children, getting to talk with them, getting to spend this time with Sophie, then goes immediately to the piano and the fiddle and Sophie yeah. there with him listening. So O'Brien certainly wouldn't write this, but some quality time together here. And as we've said, Jack is hot to get across the country to go and sit down with Mrs. Brooke, and he shares his journey in the post-chase with Stephen. And we use this conversation between Jack and Stephen to uncover a bit more about what's going on with Kimber and his associates. And I love the way that Jack is written. We're seeing on the one hand just how much of a fool Jack has been played for by this guy, Kimber, but also just how more or less in control and slightly more worldly wise Jack is now than he was a couple of books ago. So Jack says, Stephen, I was as cool as a judge and I let them talk. They were importunate to know my holdings in government stock. Asked me straight out, God damn their impertinence and the nature of my marriage settlements. This was coming in a little high. They must have thought they had a fine pigeon to pluck, a fellow that had no notion of business and could not be persuaded or frightened into any kind of ruinous foolishness. But I cut them short, said I did not mean to put down another penny and wished them good day. Lord Stephen, there are advantages in growing older. Ten years ago, even five years ago, they would have ended up in the horse pond and I should have had a suit for assault and battery on my hands as well as all the rest. So I think so far Jack gets a well played for all of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and yet another sign that even on land, Jack is a little bit more mature and a little bit wiser. Certainly much better on sea still. But... Yeah. And he, he still says he doesn't know how to get out of it. He's asking Stephen for his help. He describes the situation as being like a lee shore, you know, a danger yeah. that feels like it's almost inevitable. He's really delighted that Sophie took control and stopped the outflow of cash and sold a few things, but he really doesn't know where to turn next. And Mike, I think you and I both enjoyed the fact <laughs> that in the conversation between 
Stephen and Jack about Sophie, they refer <laughs> to the biblical passage about a good woman. And you and I both know that that's Proverbs 31. Right, right. <laughs> and any of you who go to our LinkedIn profiles, you'll, you'll find that we've got a great affection for Proverbs 31. Yeah. It's where our company came, right? So Stephen's kind enough to let Jack off the hook a little bit. You know, he doesn't remind Jack that like Sophie, he, Stephen, was against it from the start. He doesn't remind Jack that there was all this counsel and advice available to him from the very beginning of the relationship with Kimber. But he picks up on the good woman reference, asks after Killick's wife. And this is another one of those long reaches all the way back, Mike. Way back in Desolation Island, Killick had bought this wife in the marketplace. And that felt a little bit like abuse to us. That felt a little bit like an exploitation. But I think we're learning something else here. And we mentioned that this was a little bit sometimes the custom of the day. And it turns out that it's even more than just the custom of the day that this quote unquote wife was in league with her first husband. She had run off after a few days. They discovered that she had tended to steal from Killick and from the Aubreys. And she was off to rejoin her husband to be resold again in another market as they went from sort of market to market one mark to the next mark in this ongoing con job. Yeah. <laughs> and I think you had suspected this already, Mike, and lots of lots of the other readers out there had already suspected it. But it's nice that we get it picked up and taken care of, even though O'Brien's clearly playing a very long game with picking up these references. Yes. And, you know, we have yet another. I almost want to keep a little pencil tally on the wall of every time O'Brien has something disparaging to say about marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, you could put you could have put a put a bean in a jar every time O'Brien says something cynical or skeptical about marriage, and then you could take a bean out of the jar every time Stephen and Diana actually get to spend some time happily together, making each other contented. And I think you'd have a pretty full <laughs> jar by book twenty-one. <laughs> That's right. Oh well, they're they're having this great intense conversation in the chase, and then of course Jack, as only Jack can do, boom falls off into this deep sleep, you know, the sea officer can sleep any, anywhere he can. Stephen, of course, who can't sleep hardly at all anywhere. Yeah. And then Jack wakes up and kind of out of nowhere asks Stephen what a garnishee is. And, <laughs> and I love Stephen's reply. He says, sure, it is a legal term, but what it signifies, I cannot tell. I know nothing of the law, except that whenever a plain man comes in contact with it, he is likely to suffer extremely in his purse and spirit however sound his cause. So I do conjure you, my dear, to take the very best advice you can and at once. This is no time for half measures, no time for your provincial lawyers. You must fee the finest talent in London. You must armor yourself with the highly trained intelligence of an eminent counsel, accustomed to meeting these scoundrels on their own devious ground, another Grotius, a second Puffendorf. <laughs> so he's throwing names around there. Oh, yeah, everybody knows who Grotius is. Everybody's, everybody knows the name of Puffendorf, right? <laughs> Can you help us out there, Mike? Yeah, well, you, know, you think, who are these guys? And, you know, Eva talks about these little Easter eggs in O'Brien that you can unpack pretty much any sentence, any reference. You can read over them, and it's fine. You know, Grotius, Puffendorf, that's fine. I hear it. They must be great lawyers or something. You know, if we go do a little research, we find out that Grotius was this Dutch jurist diplomat who wrote this 1615 legal treatise on that, that became the basis of modern international law. And that Puffendorf actually expanded those theories of natural law. 
And so here we've got what to me was an absolutely out of the blue comment, but apparently not so to Jack. Jack says he has no idea where to find his Puffendorf. <laughs> and I'm thinking, it's Stephen Bird, right? right? But Stephen says, I know the perfect person to ask here. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen gets the chance to go visit his learned friend, just as we sometimes have to visit our learned friends in uh, in the Aubrey Matron Appreciation Society on Facebook or in the gun room of HMS Surprise. And who is Stephen's right. learned friend on this occasion? It's none other than the Intelligence Chief, Sir Joseph Blaine. Stephen brings these spoils from his intelligence coup in Boston, Johnson's private papers, and Sir Joseph, you know, brings Stephen quickly up to date on all these changes at the Admiralty, including the new acting second secretary, Mr. Edmund Ray. The gentleman Stephen remembers to himself, Jack accused publicly of cheating at cards. Oh, boy. So, Mike, this is another one of those ground shifting under your feet moments. I'll have to come up with a better phrase than ground shifting under your feet because I've said it a lot. But this is a moment where the world really sickeningly tilts. <laughs> Because that name, Ray, is a callback to this disagreement that Jack had many books ago. And without spoiling too many spoilers for our listeners who are reading along, I think we'll just say, stick a pin in the name of Mr. Secretary Ray. Because this revelation that Ray is now the acting second secretary at the Admiralty is going to set a whole series of story arcs running for at least three books. And actually, really, when you look at it, many Mm. more books to come. The connection between Ray and his role and how he relates to Stephen and Jack is going to be deep and dark and fascinating. Wow. So now it's time for us to take a short break. We're going to be right back in a few moments. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lovers hole, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash lovers hole. Help us defray some of the expenses of making the lovers hole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back. You're listening to Mike and Ian on The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. So Joseph's reading through these papers that Stephen's brought him. And meanwhile, while Sir Joseph is admiring the papers, Stephen's admiring Sir Joseph's <laughs> insect collection. And it's great, isn't it? You know, O'Brien turns on a sixpence and enters all these different worlds that he has at his disposal we're done with knowing about the names of learned Dutch lawyers in the 19th century. We're turning into natural philosophy. And uh, James Albright, if you're listening, thank you. We still remember the great time that we had talking to you. And we're in James Albright's world of describing the nondescript. And Sir Joseph Blaine's thing is insects uh-huh. and especially moths and butterflies. So while he's looking at the butterfly case, Stephen also spots a recent paper by Cuvier, another famous natural philosopher who we heard about, I think, from James Albright. And he's kind of flipping through this paper, 
trying the argument out in his head, but his mind drifts back all the time to Diana. And he thinks that he he needs to mourn the death of his myth of Diana. And this is, again, really dark, really personal stuff. He calls it a bitter, monotonous grieving. Yet, yet the mourning was not pure. It no longer invaded him entirely, perhaps because the old myth and the new reality tended to coincide. And Mike, this is all a conversation he's having inside his head as he leaves through a paper standing in Blaine's study. So there's a lot to go at here. Perhaps, he reflected as he stood there, this had a certain relationship to marriage. They had been together a very long time. And although they might essentially be strangers, they were inextricably entwined. Ooh. So for me, Mike, that's another bean in the jar of marriage skepticism. Right. And, and a little bit more mystery enfolding this interesting relationship, sometimes really <laughs> out relationship. Yeah. And I also think he's finding a way to be okay with the fact that he and Diana could be together. Yeah, good point. And I think that's okay. I'm, I'm glad about that because to be in such close proximity to her and still convincing himself over and over again that he doesn't love her anymore and that there's a cold, dark void in his heart where his love for her used to be, that's going to be a tough place to be. For sure. Oh, absolutely. A friend used to say that you grieve after divorce, but unlike grieving for somebody who's passed with divorce, you know, they're, they're dead to you, but they don't go away. <laughs> Ouch. No. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Although if you block them from social media, you can pretty much take care of that these days. If you don't have kids, right? We can anyhow, all that. <laughs> anyhow, Stephen and Sir Joseph talk about this great coup and Stephen jokes. I think he's trying to maybe also elicit a backhanded remark out of Sir Joseph Blaine. Stephen jokes that this is a fine way to end his intelligence career. And I think the the, the joking prod kind of pays off because Sir Joseph Blaine's going, what do you mean? end your career completely misses the fact that Stephen's making a joke and implores Stephen to stay on and tells him that this cause against Napoleon may still be lost and that Spain and Catalonia might still be lost and that the French are ready for action by sea and that England's in a perilous state and there's high taxes and the navy is overstretched and let's slip this secondary idea Mike that if he, Sir Joseph, was as confident as Stephen that everything was okay, he'd go into the city, he'd buy up government and foreign trade stocks, which are dirt cheap at that moment, and he would make a killing when the stocks rise as Napoleon gets defeated. And this is a really telling moment. He's looking back to Canning, who was trying to sweeten various deals for Jack by offering him a tip on where he could make money in the stock market. And it's also looking ahead another piece of foreshadowing to a really important piece of story that's going to play out in about four books time. So again, if you're a spoiler avoiding reader, stick a pin in that and we'll come back to it. If you know what we're talking about, then just enjoy the moment of Patrick O'Brien playing a really long game with us here. Yeah. And and I remember even in, um, in India, you know, Stephen talking to that one Indian kind of accountant in his accounting house, yeah. you know, also telling Stephen, you know, you can make this killing playing the stock market, given the fortunes of war, if you will. And so you're right. That's going to be fascinating to see this. And well, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> so meanwhile, we're back. I think in the more or less real timeline, we're in what I think is called the Sixth Coalition, which was kind of a fragile time around 1813 when the network of alliances that were standing against Bonaparte and his allies were a bit fractious and a bit fragile. And Bonaparte was in 
pretty powerful mode. And I think Sir Joseph Blaine was giving us the right steer there about the historical context. Britain's finances and the empire's finances were in a pretty parlous state. And small incremental gains and victories and concessions on the margins of the map of Europe might have a big impact. And one such was this strongly fortified island, Grimsholm, fictitious island um, in the Baltic, which Sir Joseph says to Stephen is manned by a Catalan brigade on behalf of the French. And this this island and its occupation is preventing England from landing people behind Napoleon's lines and outflanking Napoleon. He knows that the people on the island, these Catalan soldiers, have been tricked into believing that them holding the island is the key to Catalan independence because otherwise they would side with the British. And by the way, Mike, I think this is a borrowing of an episode involving a Danish island, the island of Funen, which was occupied by Spanish troops on behalf of Napoleon back in 1807. But meanwhile, back in our story, Blaine is saying to Maturin, we have the situation. If only you'd been here a few short weeks ago, we could have given you this job because it would have been absolutely your thing, but you weren't around. So they sent a leader from the world of Catalan letters, Pompeu Ponsic, a poet known and respected, and Stephen's very happy with the choice that they made. Uh, he calls him by a familiar name, and Pompeu, and I think that suggests that Stephen knows this person, as Stephen is well-connected with lots of people in wealthy and literary Catalan society. And that seems to be the end of it. Stephen's happy that they've given Ponsic the mission. He would certainly have accepted it, but this means that he can accept an invitation to speak at the Institute in Paris, which is going to be a whole other thing for Stephen, I think. Yeah, yeah. We've heard that you know he's been invited before, had to turn it down. Now he's been invited again. Diana's a little excited about that. Stephen's very excited about that. I love that Sir Joseph is thinking, oh, great. Let me help you with that. I'll arrange all the paperwork for you. And he's about to suggest that Stephen, while he's in Paris, can renew some of his intelligence acquaintances. <laughs> But he remembers <laughs> Stephen has this fascinating moral code. You know, he won't take any payment for his intelligence work. And, and at times, and this being one of them, he is playing it straight. He wants to go there and be a natural philosopher. He wants to deliver a natural philosophy paper. And he also wants to kind of help restore his cover. He says that if he walks into the lion's mouth, as he calls it, of his own free will, as a scientific authority, if he does nothing but act as a scientist, that'll help preserve his cover. It'll protect him. And it's really what he wants to do. And he's got a rationale for it as well. With, with it, what gave me anyway, this very uneasy feeling of deja vu. He says the only two people who could have denounced him as an agent were the two people who he slit the throat of and bashed on the head in the hotel room in Boston. And that everybody else who's ever been able to associate his name and his face and his activities as an intelligence agent is dead or out of the scene somehow. Yeah. And that sounds a little bit like that slightly hubristic thought that he had before he made the trip to Mahon a few books ago, which didn't work out very well. Yeah. That, and Sir Joseph kind of warns him that, you know, these, these two agents that are dead in America had associates there who certainly knew what they were doing. And if they make it back to France before Stephen gets there or while Stephen's there, that they could blow his cover. But as you say, like in, in the run-up to Mahan, she was like, no, 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 they'll never get back in time. And so I'm going, uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Stephen really wants to go to the Institute. And I think he's looking forward as well to spending some time in France. We, we've heard it quite a few times from Stephen that 
He hates Bonaparte, but he loves France and the French, and he loves Paris in particular. Yes. And he wants it so bad that he asked uh, Sir Joseph for a few favors. And I think Sir Joseph is just delighted because it's like, I'll do anything at all you want. And, you know, he says that Diana has been detained as an enemy alien because of her association with Johnson. Stephen vouches for her and asks that Sir Joseph obtain papers that would get her released so that she's not bound to kind of a home arrest almost. And he also wants a lawyer for Jack. And he figures that Sir <laughs> Joseph is ideally placed to give him some advice on that. And his Puffendorf. <laughs> yeah, his Puffendorf, that, that Sir Joseph could find that. And Stephen is being very kind of keeping Jack's confidentiality. Sir Joseph is trying not to pry, but he needs to know what kind of a lawyer. So Stephen tells him a little bit of the story and Sir Joseph is just aghast. He's blown away that some naval officer has signed papers without reading them, but he then kind of remembers all these smartest naval commanders that he's known who do the stupidest things in land. (laughs) Sir Joseph says, the imbecility of your sailors ashore passes all belief, even in very able men capable of leading a fleet and conducting difficult diplomatic negotiations with real finesse. So we have people who are brilliant at sea, and real blockheads ashore. <laughs> he's he's happy to help. And I think he's almost glad that he can help by doing a favor that costs him relatively little. Recommending a lawyer and helping Diana out with her paperwork is is a snip, I think, for the value that uh, Joseph Blaine has got from Stephen. Right. And meanwhile, and I think they, they've uncovered to each other which sea captain they're talking about. Yes. And he recommends that, he says that he admires Jack and he recommends that Jack really needs to keep his father at a distance, if at all possible. He credits Jack's father and also the earlier disagreement with Ray as the reason why Jack lost the commission of the Acasta, the new frigate that was being built. We even learned that he could have got a knighthood or a baronetcy for sinking the Vaxam height. And I don't think Jack was ever close to hoping for those things. I think he was hoping for it for the uh, Mauritius campaign. Right. But it's clear that all of these backroom interests have really conspired to damage Jack's career. And Sir Joseph is trying to figure out what it is that leads sailors to put themselves in these possessions. So he's trying to figure out, what now, where am I going to find the right legal talent? And Mike, he's delving now into the world of popular entertainment in a way that I think tells us a lot about Joseph Blaine and tells us a little bit about the way that Patrick O'Brien's used musical and dramatic cues to help tell the story here. So Sir Joseph is turning over in his mind who's the right lawyer. And as he thinks, he sings. He sings in Italian. He sings part of the song La Vendetta, which is number four from Act One of the opera The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. So, Mike, there's a few things I want to dig into here. First of all, props to Patrick O'Brien. He's left his bad days of misappropriated Boccherini quartets long behind him. This is an absolutely plum quote. He's chosen Marriage of Figaro that was absolutely popular and well-known, although we're now, what are we, 15 years after Mozart's death. But the Marriage of Figaro was one of the big cultural landmarks of, of the classical era, very widely known about, very widely sung. This number, La Vendetta, sung by Don Bartolo, in Act One, is 
Bartolo trying to figure out who can I get to do this particular job to wreak this particular vengeance. And he talks about finding someone with astuteness, with cleverness, with judgment, with discernments. Let's take a little listen. So, for those of you who like your references complete, um, that's available on YouTube. It's from The Marriage of Figaro. It's Kurt Moll singing the part of Don Bartolo, which presents us with an interesting little cultural mixing pot there, doesn't it, Mike? It, it really does. As Blaine is trying to find the ideal legal representative, or you know, you would think nowadays the legal team, here we have a German bass singing an Austrian composer's opera about Spanish revenge in Italian for the legal team. And one of the, you know, the listings I gave to this in prep for this episode was sung in the Sydney Opera House. So good day, mate. There's your, there's your <laughs> That's a lawyer. <laughs> Excellent. Multiculturalism lives. There you go. So I think this also speaks to a, a bit of character background for Joseph Blaine as well as realizing as he's singing and humming along with the tune in his head, realizing that the, the London equivalent of Don Bartolo was going to be this guy, Wilbraham Skinner. He's called the sharpest of them all. We get a little bit of an idea that Blaine is a bit of a lush and that he likes the slightly salacious erotic side of popular entertainments like opera. And even that he has tastes on what you might call both sides of the aisle. We've, we already know that he's a big fan of a particular mutation in moths and butterflies called a gynandromorph, a simultaneously male and female butterfly. He talks about how there is a most exquisite young person singing Cherubino as part of him recommending to Stephen that he goes to the opera while he's in London to hear this Cherubino being sung by this exquisite young person. And the role of Cherubino is a soprano. It's a breeches role, which means it's sung by a female but singing a male part and therefore, in costume terms, wearing breeches. Now, for British lovers of pantomime, we know the idea of the pantomime dame and the pantomime prince being respectively gender reversed. But this is something about <laughs> the character in Mozart's opera that came to Blaine's notice. And we're going to hear at other times in the canon, I think, about Blaine's uncertainty about you know just how he's going to get along with the, the idea of getting married and having a relationship and stuff. So I wish Sir Joseph Blaine well in exploring his gender identity. And meanwhile, um, we're going to tweet out a link for you of a very famous sung breeches role, which was from the last night of the proms a number of years ago with an excellent British soprano singing Rule Britannia. Enjoy that when it comes on our social media. And for lovers of O'Brien, take particular note of her dress, right? Her costume. Take particular note of the costume. <laughs> You'll be able to see that link on our Twitter feed. We'll tweet it out through at Whole Lubbers. So that's where we are on Twitter if you want to find us. And we'll share it as well on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Lubbers Whole. 
please join us in either of those places. Talk to us, join in the conversation, tell us how it's going. Well, and I wonder if it's possible for us to to put it up on the Aubrey Matron Facebook appreciation group. I don't know. Oh, I think I dare say we could. I dare say that little bit of cross-posting will be allowed. There you go. Well, Stephen also lets Blaine know that Diana might accompany him. And this is interesting. So Stephen is now broaching a little bit of this relationship between him and Diana with Sir Joseph. Uh, Sir Joseph says, you know, ah, he'll he'll get Matron documents for his journey, you know, in addition to getting Diana her document. And he will leave space for any what he calls companion, as well as any servant <laughs> that Matron wants to take. Uh, with him. And, and he does this great shout out to all these natural philosophers, again, many that James Albright talked about when we talked with him. Uh, and he reminds Stephen to give the Cuviers my warmest regards. <laughs> Which is the equivalent in, in, in late night chat show world to saying, give Stephen Colbert a big hello from me. <laughs> it's like, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, so here we are, we're, you know, we're wrapping up chapter four. We've got Jack, ashore, potentially in deep debt once again, besieged by Kimber and his new associates, all these lawyers and hangers-on and you know businessmen. We've got Stephen headed off to Paris to deliver his paper at the Institute, having been warned of potential danger by Sir Joseph. Hmm, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what indeed? What indeed? And Mike, I still don't think that we've really set this story spinning. I think that there are some inciting events that we still haven't yet come across. I think something really compelling has got to happen to either Stephen or Diana or Jack or all three of them. And I think it might be coming pretty soon. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in that case, Mike, I think that we're making good progress through The Surgeon's Mate, but there's more for us to read and reflect on. So... What do you say to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. God, never mind. Shut up. Delete all that. Oh, fudge.